This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Hey, back to the too big for your britches, though. I do just want to say something. I forgot about that phrase. I used to get told that a lot when I was a kid. I'm sure that's shocking to you. If there was ever a phrase that was going to be on my headstone... (laughs) I want you to uh-huh. mark my words right now. I would be too big for your bridges. Got a little too big for bridges, <laughs> you know. Metaphorically speaking, not literally. Uh, okay, <laughs> done. I got you, girl. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Here lies Mogab. <laughs> Got too big for her bridges. Yeah. Should we just go one name, just single name like Madonna, just Mogab? Too big for her bridges, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll put Russell Wildrig Mogab next to you. <laughs> <laughs> I do love there was one time he got called Mr. Mogab and it really made me happy on OnStar he like OnStarred he was driving my truck and hit OnStar and they're like yes how can we help you Mr. Mogab and I was like yes yes please yes Ugh. guess who's back back again Anna Luisa's back tell a friend look that's it. what's his face you think you thought I didn't know Eminem yeah <laughs> Anna Luisa Jewelry is back as our sponsor this week. Yes. They craft versatile, high-quality pieces at very affordable prices, starting at just $39. That is a price point I can vibe with, let me just tell you. (laughs) And they sent us some jewelry. I got two pairs of earrings, and I love them. I literally, the ones I'm wearing now, I got the Cassie earrings that are these little studs that like hoop around from the back of your ear. They're super unique and simple, and they're perfect for every day. I literally have not taken them off in over a week, (laughs) and you can dress them up, which I love. I also got a pair of, like, gold hoops that are really classy and gorgeous, and I can't wait to, like, go out to a nice dinner or a happy hour and show them off. I might wear them to your happy hour (laughs) when I get to see you. And I also love that Ana Luisa really cares about their impact on the environment. They're completely carbon neutral from packaging to products, which I was really impressed with. You can go to shop.analuisa.com slash creepers. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A and creepers with an S. 
That's shop.analuisa.com slash creepers. A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash creepers to take advantage of the buy one, get one 40% off sale. The link is in the show notes. Everyone needs to do that because some of the pieces I'm telling you, get yourself a Taurus <laughs> emblem. Even if you're not a Taurus, just wear it because you should be. Get yourself a mama necklace. I don't have a kid. I'm rocking that because I'm a dog mom. I mean, you just, the selection is chef's kiss. Okay? Yes. <laughs> Before we get into this week's episode, I want to talk about something called the Patreon. I've never heard of that. <laughs> get out of here. We do have a Patreon, and it would be awesome if you would join. We just dropped a bonus episode over the murder of Marilyn Depew, which is a very sad story, but has a connection to Jeepers Creepers. That's really weird. We've got a bunch of mini creeps on there at the $7 level. You get the mini creeps and you get a sticker with a card with our autographs if you put your shipping address in there. (laughs) And then we have a $10 level where you can get 20% off merch. So if any of that is interesting to you, please go to patreon.com slash Creepers and sign up. And that would be awesome. And thank you. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. 
Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. All right, you ready to get into this story? Get into it, girl. All right. A big, big shout to Matthew McGuff, who's like the expert on this case. He wrote a book called The Lazarus Files, A Cold Case Investigation. And then he also wrote an article for The Atlantic called The Lazarus Files. And then a big thanks to Mark Bowden for his article in Vanity Fair titled A Case So Cold It Was Blue. Oh, Vanity Fair, I feel like always has the good stuff. Like, I feel like that's a I magazine. I do like their articles. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I- is it a magazine? Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Today, I am telling you about the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Ras? Oh, never mind. I was thinking of Rasputin from Anastasia. I loved that story. <laughs> I got really excited. Rasputin. No, think, uh, more Nordic, less Russian. Ugh, Anastasia is a very interesting story. Could you tell me about that sometime? Sure. <laughs> okay, <great>. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it a mini creep. Just over here God. taking requests. Watch the Disney, <laughs> Watch yeah, the Disney well, movie. <laughs> if I got to sit here. I have heard that the Disney movie of Anastasia is very historically accurate. So, Yeah, well, that's really what I need. I don't <laughs> want like a real story. Hmm. One one with Rasputin. Okay. It was February of 1986. Two and a half months before I would grace the world with my I presence. knew it. Ray-Bans, crop tops, and power suits with gigantic shoulder pads were all the rage. They still are, I think. <laughs> well, they're back. They're not still. They're back. Yeah. I know. Sherry Rasmussen had just turned 29, and for someone not even 30, she really seemed to have it all figured out. She was beautiful. She was confident. She was successful. People described her as brilliant. She'd started at Loma Linda University when she was just 16 for critical care nursing, and she was already the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, where part of her job duties were to give lectures, sometimes even internationally, on critical care nursing. And she also taught professional development classes to other nurses. Oh. She's 29. So, you know, if that makes you anybody out there feel bad about yourself, uh, same. (laughs) No, we just said screw the timeline. You're right. You're right. Screw the timeline. The morning of Monday, February 24th, 1986, Sherry had a class she was supposed to teach, but she just really wasn't feeling up to it. It was a class the hospital made the nurses take. It was like a human resources class. And Sherry saw it as as a waste of time. She just didn't want to go. She was still debating calling in sick when her husband, John Rutten, left for work around 720, even though usually she was the first one to leave. Sherry and John had met in the summer of 1984 and had a whirlwind romance. Oh, tell me more. (laughs) They fell hard for each other immediately, and a year and a half later, they were married. John was a recent graduate from UCLA who later got a job working for an engineering company. They'd only been married about three months at this point in our story, and they just started getting into that routine of married life together in the condo they shared in Van Nuys which is a neighborhood in L.A. in the San Fernando Valley. When John got to work that morning, he thought about calling Sherry, but figured he didn't want to bother her if she decided to sleep in instead of going into that class. So he didn't try calling her. That's what true love looks like, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Letting them sleep in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he didn't try calling her until around mid-morning. And when she didn't answer, he figured she'd decided to go into work after all. 
So he tried her work phone, but her secretary said she hadn't seen her yet. This was normal for Mondays when Sherry taught classes. According to the secretary, she like rarely ever saw her on those days. So John tried calling the house a few times, and when he couldn't get a hold of Sherry, he figured she decided to teach her class, and he went about his day. Sherry's sister was also trying to get a hold of her, but her calls also went unanswered. And there were some odd things going on around the Ruttons' townhome. At 9.45, a neighbor noticed that their garage door was open, but they couldn't see a car inside. The neighbor also said that around noon, two men they thought were gardeners knocked on their door to hand over a purse they'd found. The purse would later turn out to be Sherry's. And a house cleaner working in another unit said she'd heard what sounded like two people arguing and then something falling around 12.30. But John wasn't aware of any of this. He didn't know he might have something to be concerned about. He even stopped after work to run some errands. He picked up his dry cleaning. He stopped by UPS. And he finally got home at around 6 that evening. When he pulled up to their townhome, he noticed the garage door was open and that Sherry's car wasn't inside, but... He just figured she'd left and forgotten to close it. He wasn't really worried. Sorry, the car was gone? The car was gone. Yeah. Okay. When he stepped out of his car, he noticed glass shards on the floor of the garage. But John still wasn't concerned. A few weeks earlier, she'd whacked the side of her car getting out of the garage. And so his thoughts were more like, oh, Sherry, what did you do now? Like, Imagine getting home and not knowing where your wife is and there are shards and you're not concerned. <laughs> I'm panicking. <laughs> So you kind of need to know how these townhomes are set up. It's kind of similar to yours, I think. This was a three-story townhome that had a garage just big enough for two cars. And then Mm -hmm. directly above the garage, there was a small balcony with a sliding glass door that was like from the living room out. Yeah, okay. Well, now I'm freaked out. Are you going to tell me how someone (laughs) got in? (laughs) This sounds nothing like my townhome, everybody. (laughs) The balcony was just big enough for the two chairs and a grill they had set up there. And inside the garage were stairs that led up to the second floor of the townhome. John grabbed his dry cleaning out of the car and he headed up the stairs and he noticed the door to the living room had not been fully closed. And this is when the alarm bells start going off for him. Mm. He opened the door and he saw Sherry lying on the floor of the living room, still wearing her red bathrobe. For a moment, John thought maybe she was just sleeping, but then he saw her face. Her face was covered in dried blood. Her right eye was bruised and swollen shut, and she had an expression of surprise frozen on her face. John ran to her and realized her limbs were stiff and her skin was cold and she had no pulse. And then in the center of her chest was a bullet hole. John called 911 and investigators arrived quickly. As technicians documented the crime scene meticulously, homicide detective Lyle Mayer surveyed the scene to see what stood out. The living room was completely ransacked. A tall speaker had been knocked over, a vase had been shattered on the floor, shelves in a cabinet had been knocked over. There were blood smears all over the room, on the wall, on the front door, on a CD player that was stacked neatly on top of a VCR at the bottom of the stairs to the third floor, like someone was planning on carrying them out. Mm -hmm. Cords had been ripped out of speakers, and one of the sliding glass doors that led to the balcony above the garage was completely shattered. And this was the glass that John had seen earlier in the garage. 
A pink and green quilted blanket was found on a chair in the living room that appeared to have been used to muffle the sounds of the gunshots. Sherry had been shot three times, it turns out. The first time, it seems, was to subdue her. It was from farther away. And the last two were fired point blank into her chest. All three would have been fatal on their own. And the bullets were all thirty-eight caliber. But Sherry's attacker hadn't just shot her. It seemed like they'd also smashed that vase over her head and bitten her on her inner left forearm, where there was now a visible bite mark. Why? So if it's on the left forearm, why do you think they would bite her? Oh, because they were like trying to cover her mouth. And she, no, wait, sh- the bite mark was on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Detective Mayer questioned John. As the husband, he's obviously the first suspect. But Detective Mayer was already formulating a theory about what happened here. John was sobbing as he told him how he and Sherry had just gotten married and how they were having just the best time. He couldn't understand who would want to hurt her. They asked him if they were having any financial problems or if either of them were having problems with an ex. But John said no to all of it. He then took detectives through his day step by step. Sherry had definitely been dead for several hours when he called police, and his day was otherwise well accounted for. He couldn't have done this. But Mayer really didn't think he had. Hours after he'd arrived at the townhouse, he told John what he was pretty certain had happened here. He figured this was all a burglary gone wrong. The wires were missing from the speakers because the burglars were planning on taking them, and the VCR and CD player were stacked by the stairs were stacked like that because the burglars had been interrupted by Sherry while they were gathering stuff to steal. Mm -hmm. They'd expected to find the townhouse empty, and when they realized there was a witness, they killed her. I feel like that's happened a few times. Uh And I just feel like robbery is still better than murder. Sure. Right. (sighs) Right. That's why it didn't seem like much was taken apart from the BMW, which they must have used as a getaway car. The only other thing missing, oddly enough, was John and Sherry's marriage license. What? Yeah. That's that's weird, too. That's not something you have, like, framed and hung on the wall, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. It's like in a file. Or, like, in a book, or I don't know. I don't feel like I've seen those, like, we're framing our marriage license. I mean, you frame your wedding photos, but that's usually not, like, out on display. It's not like a diploma that you hang in your office, (laughs) you know? Although, which is more work to maintain, you know? (laughs) Like, what should we really be framing here? Like, look how far we've made without killing each other, (laughs) you know? All right, you'll be allowed to frame it and hang it on the wall after your 10-year anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) No chance. I'm just kidding. <laughs> One of us will I be can't dead. Wait. <laughs> Till you're ha- framing that that marriage license <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> yeah. The BMW was recovered about a week later. It was found parked on the street in Van Nuys, unlocked with the keys in the ignition. They found fingerprints, some blood, and some hair in the car, but nothing else pointing them in the direction of the murderer. Until Detective Mayer and his partner Roger Pita got wind of a woman in the Van Nuys area that had been robbed at gunpoint by two Hispanic men. There were several other stories similar to this, and one woman had even been assaulted during one of these robberies. They figured these were the same men that had killed Sherry. 
you know what story is similar to this? Mm-hmm. Lacey Peterson. And you know what happened to the robbery across the street? No <laughs> one cared. Uh, it just got me so mad all over again. Mm. I'm just glad it's not the husband. I'm tired of this. <laughs> it's not the husband. I can guarantee you. <laughs> they figured these were the same men that had killed Sherry. But Nels Rasmussen, Sherry's father, he thought differently. He wasn't even notified until one in the morning that day that Sherry was found dead. And it was John's father calling with the news. So the husband's dad. The husband's dad. Nels lived in Tucson, Arizona. And when he got the news, he was completely shocked. But his shock didn't last long. It quickly turned to anger. He asked why it wasn't John calling him with this news and why it had taken them so long for them to call him. Well... I just don't feel like that's something you're, like, jumping at the opportunity to do. And I I would assume law enforcement would do it. Yeah. I am surprised that it took them, like, that long to call. But I would have thought, yeah, I don't know how that works, you know. Uh I don't think it's odd that John... Yeah, didn't want to make that call. Couldn't I don't know. I mean, your your new wife, and you don't call the her dad, her parents. Yeah, I don't know. But neither he nor his wife Loretta liked John very much, so I think that had something to do with his feelings. They thought he was nice enough, but they were not impressed with his lack of directions and his quote lefty politics. Oh, good. <laughs> Good, good. And getting this call from John's dad and not from John himself, it pissed Nels off. He spent a complete and and I I wonder also how much of that was him just like directing his emotions at anger at John, you know? Yeah. He spent a completely sleepless night trying to focus through the pain of discovering that his daughter had been murdered. And he thought of all the conversations he'd have with Sherry over the past several months. And he spent the evening writing down notes about everything he possibly could know about this situation. And by the time the sun came up, Nels was certain he knew who had done this. He and Loretta immediately left Tucson and headed straight for L.A. He got in touch with Detective Mayer, who spent some time explaining to Nels their theory of the crime was a botched burglary and also explained how they'd ruled out John as a suspect. And Nels listened to the detective. And then his first question was, have you checked out John's ex-girlfriend, the lady cop? What? He said he didn't know the woman's name, just that she was an officer with the LAPD, and she was Nels' prime suspect of his daughter's murder. The lady cop in question was named Stephanie Lazarus, and Nels had heard some concerning stories about her from Sherry, and the first happened in July or August before their wedding in November. They were engaged at this point, John and Sherry. But it was a few weeks before John had moved into Sherry's townhome, and Sherry had called Nels to tell her that John's ex-girlfriend, Stephanie, had shown up at her office at Glendale Adventist at the hospital where she worked, and she'd walked up to Sherry's secretary, and she's wearing these, like, super short athletic shorts and this, like, really tight tank top, and she asked to see Sherry. The secretary, Sylvia, told her that Sherry was at lunch, and Stephanie said she'd wait for her. Sherry eventually came back from lunch, and she and Stephanie went into her office and closed the door. Stephanie told Sherry that she was there to let her know that John had recently come to see her. And she thought- Stephanie, sit down. (laughs) (laughs) And she thought Sherry should know that she and John were still having sex. Oh. 
She told Sherry that she'd known John for a long time and she knew what he wanted. And when their marriage failed, she'd be waiting to pick up the pieces. I dare. I dare somebody to come <laughs> and tell me that. And then I'd be like, well, would you like me to submit a list of all of my grievances <laughs> about everything now or later? Sherry told her, don't worry, we won't be needing your services. <laughs> Stephanie then, according to Nels, which is relaying the, this story that he heard from Sherry, Stephanie then told her that if she couldn't have John, no one could, not even Sherry. Sherry later confronted John about this whole interaction, yeah, and he like, admitted, yeah, and he admitted that he had gone to Stephanie's oh. once after she'd called him crying, and they'd had sex. And oh. this was after they were engaged. And so he begged her for forgiveness, and he promised her that there would be no more contact with Stephanie. And I think this was a pretty, like, pleading on his knees. I'm sorry. I realize that you're, like, the only one for me. No. Why men great till they gotta be great? (laughs) Why? No. But it didn't end there. Several months later. Of course not. Yeah. No. Of course not. Several months later, just a few weeks before Sherry and John got married, Stephanie showed up at their home, unannounced. Better than the wedding, I guess. Yes. Wearing what Wikipedia calls flattering workout clothes. But that was <laughs> that was not in any of the cited sources. So I don't That's because it was before the pandemic, too. Now it would just be like, <laughs> she's wearing yeah. literally her work outfit. Yeah. Like, not workout outfit, but her work outfit right (laughs) she said she'd come by to drop off a pair of skis that she wanted john to (laughs) wax for her (laughs) ew (laughs) is that what she calling her legs (laughs) i don't know i don't this is so weird who uh, okay listen we've all okay okay women Not that we've ever done this, but we've all been the girl that has had an excuse to go see the guy or, like, need a favor. Right. Not necessarily the guy that's in a relationship. But you can't come up with anything better than waxing your skis. (laughs) Could you imagine an ex of Russell's just shows up, hands you some skis, and says, like, have Russell wax these for me. Yes, I can because I think about that all of the time. I I'm psycho and I think about all these <laughs> ex-girlfriends situations. that want your man. Yes. <laughs> Which I'm sure is not ever going to happen. But I have. <sighs> Stephanie stuck around longer than Sherry wanted her to and eventually she had to tell her that she wasn't welcome there. Like John Eventually that would have been the first thing out of my mouth. Well, I think she was kind of hoping that John would step up and say oh, something yeah. to get her out so she wouldn't have to. She'd already been put in an uncomfortable situation at the hospital. And now this is in her own home. And Nels was very unimpressed that it was Sherry who had to speak up to get Stephanie to leave. Because so John wait. wouldn't stand up to her. So John didn't say anything? No. He would not tell and her to leave. Sherry's dad just knows this, I guess, because she Sherry gone. called him and told him. Oh. Yeah, Sherry called him and told him this whole story. And I and I'm like, "John, aren't you still a little bit on thin ice for that whole cheating thing with this <laughs> woman that's in your living room and you're not like 
telling her to get out? Yeah, like hasn't the ice like cracked and your ass is like (laughs) submerged? Yes, and it made Sherry think that there might still be something going on with Stephanie. And so she confronted John about it and they got into an argument, but John swore that there was nothing going on anymore with him and Stephanie. She was just someone he'd known since the college dorm days at UCLA, and they'd hooked up a few times after they had both graduated, but the relationship had never been serious. He wouldn't even really define it as a relationship. God, poor Russell. I, he's going to start contacting you about the episodes. Because now I'm going to go downstairs. You would never cheat on me when we're engaged, right? He's like, what? No, I've never cheat on you. But, uh, you know, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to go through right. 20 questions tonight before sure. bed. <laughs> Tell me a whole thing. Look, Sherry basically told John under no circumstances was he to wax this woman's skis. But he did it anyway. What? Yes. He told Sherry that if he just waxed them and gave them back to her, then she wouldn't bother them anymore. And this was just the best way to sleeping together. (laughs) This was just the best way to deal with it. I don't think they are. I do not think they are at this point. I could see that because guys, I feel like want to avoid conflict in the uncomfortable mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where – and he doesn't care that she's uncomfortable. It's more uncomfortable for him to have to stand up. So he's like, look, I don't care about her. Like, I'm just going to do this favor and she'll go away and she won't need anything. But, like, it's mm-hmm. – no. Like – And I think they underestimate women a little bit too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Later, John would say that he doesn't remember either of these incidents – but Nell says that's the story Sherry told them. And he just got the impression that John would not cut off contact with Stephanie like he should have. Yes. Then he told another story that Sherry had told him. One night in mid-January, this is a month before the murder and two months after the wedding. So they're married by now, Sherry and John. So they were only married for like a couple months before she got married. Three months. Yeah. Three months before she got murdered. Yeah. Sherry called her parents in tears, which was alarming to them because she didn't cry easily. She told them that Stephanie had come by the house again. Girl. It was another day where Sherry was going into work later than usual and John had left before her. And most of the time, Sherry was the one who left for work earlier. But this day, she decided to go in a little late so she could get some writing done for a lecture she was going to be giving at a nursing conference. Around 10 o'clock that morning, Sherry walked into her living room to see Stephanie standing in her living room in full police uniform, which obviously means she's armed. Yeah. And I'm sure she doesn't have a key. No. Sherry hadn't even heard her come in. Stephanie told her she was there to see John, and Sherry told her to get out and that she didn't want her coming by the house to see John ever again. Like, what is so hard to understand about that? (laughs) She's not getting it. (laughs) Sherry told her father that the timing of it all made her wonder if this was like a usual thing, that Stephanie would come over sometimes after Sherry had left for work because she Mm -hmm. usually left first while John was still home. Sherry told them she didn't know what to do. She was frustrated that John's ex was still causing them problems even after they were married. Nels told her she needed to get John's help. He needed to tell Stephanie to stay away. Yeah. Sherry told him that John didn't have the will to stand up to her. Nels offered to go himself and have this chat with Stephanie. I'm about to. I know. And tell her to stay away. But Sherry told him not to. 
She thought briefly about reporting the incident since Stephanie had entered her home without permission. Ugh. But it complicated things that she's a police officer. Like, Stephanie, where are your sorority sisters that should intervene right now and tell you that your behavior is concerning? Just, I feel like, thank goodness I had, look, say what you want, but we look out for each other. I don't know. I kind of feel like sometimes we bring the pitchforks with each other, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And someone should be in there with a pitchfork hauling her ass out. It's about to be me. Yeah. Nels figured that if Sherry reported this situation, she'd be laughed out of the police station since Stephanie's a cop. And Sherry didn't want to provoke Stephanie any further. John said he didn't remember Sherry ever telling him about this incident. I do love that Sherry's telling everything to her dad. Yeah, I know. You know? I feel like so often people try and protect their, like, the image of their significant other or whoever mm-hmm. to like their parents. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know what? Yeah, out his ass, Sherry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Nels told Detective Mayer about all these phone calls, all these disturbing meetings with this woman whose name Nels had never been told. So he didn't know her name. He just knew her as the lady cop, the ex-girlfriend, hmm. the lady cop. But even though it was only one day after the murder that Detective Mayer's hearing all of this, he was already set on his burglar theory. In fact, he later told Nels, when Nels kept pushing the issue, that he'd been watching too many cop shows on TV. Like, settle down, like, patronizing. That's not even it. But Nels did not drop it. He went with John to the coroner's to pick up Sherry's jewelry, and while he was there, he paid for a copy of the autopsy report. He noticed that the bullets were similar, if not the same, as police-issued bullets. They were 38s. He met with Detective Mayer again a few days after their first meeting, and he brought this up to him. But Mayer never acknowledged what he said about the bullets. In fact, Mayer was a little annoyed that he'd gotten this autopsy report. He's like, how did you get this? Yeah. Time went by, and Nels kept pestering Mayer about John's ex-girlfriend, the lady cop. When Mayer told Nels that the living room showed signs of a struggle that may have lasted as long as an hour and a half, Nels pointed out that it was unlikely that his daughter could have fought off two men for an hour and a half. The, the struggle probably wouldn't have gone that long if she's fighting two men. Yeah, I wonder how they, like, estimate that. Like, what made him think that? I just, guess like, just the amount of, up. yeah, they're, like, kind of reconstructing this fight. Like, up you people, know? yeah. Even Mayer's partner, Steve Hooks, said that the bite mark pointed to this likely being a woman. Because apparently women are more likely to be biters, but tell that to Ted Bundy. And aren't our mouths like a little bit smaller, our teeth or something? I mean, my mouth is tiny. I I have to wear child's stuff at the dentist, so. Wait, really? Yes. I have to ask them for the child's plate whenever I have to get like a mold taken or whatever. Oh my God, I love that for you. My big old mouth from the south over here. I wish I had a big mouth that doesn't fit my face, but. I feel like the first thing they need to do is just check around. That if there's if there's a woman in there, she shed. Okay, there was <laughs> she left some hair somewhere. So, well, unless she was like, I don't know. She if she's a cop, no, she might know how to we tie shed. that bun up, you know. But for whatever reason, and that reason is probably twofold. She's a cop, and he had tunnel vision on this burglary thing. Mm-hmm. Mayor refused to even entertain the idea that Stephanie Lazarus could have had anything to do with this. Well, what's her record like, you know? Is she fine? Like, I doubt know, he pulled it, but yeah, I don't think she had anything in her background. 
But I doubt that it was even looked into. Right. He told Nels in no uncertain terms that he did not want his input on this case anymore. Burglars had killed Sherry. That's what happened. Deal with it, was basically the message Nels was getting from Mayer. They hadn't even brought Stephanie in to talk or examine her to see if she had any signs of a struggle on her body. Either Mayer or Hooks eventually talked to her on the phone, and they seemed to be satisfied with her story, enough to close that line of inquiry completely. Nels couldn't believe that Mayer thought burglars who killed but left behind all the valuables was a more likely scenario than an ex-girlfriend with some pretty concerning behavior. Mark Bowden, the author of the Vanity Fair article, he attributes this to a few things. One, that Mayer only seemed to consider two suspects, John and home invaders. And mm-hmm. after speaking to John and ruling him out because there was no motive, no insurance, no trouble in the relationship, his day was pretty well accounted for. There's trouble in that relationship. Well, but he was like, no, I have no problem with any exes. Like, he didn't yeah, think he weird. had any problem with a, with an ex. Because I could just hear him now, like, oh, we didn't really date. We were just hooking up. She wasn't even really a girl. She's not really an really ex. call her an ex-girlfriend. Yeah. We were just friends. <laughs> We we were just friends. Yeah. So (laughs) after he spoke to John and ruled him out, Mayer settled on the only other option he'd even considered, burglars. John told him he didn't have any problems with any ex-girlfriends. And Mayer seems to have taken his word for this over all the stories Nels was telling him. Stephanie Lazarus became a one-line note in a file, and Sherry Rasmussen's case inevitably went cold. Mm. There was physical evidence here. They had saliva from the bite marks. They had yeah. hairs. They had blood. I knew it. But in February of 1986, DNA had never been used in a criminal investigation. Actually, the first time would be seven months after Sherry's murder in the case of these two 15-year-old girls that were murdered in England. That was the first case oh, wow. in 1986 that DNA was used. I, that's a lot earlier than I thought. Yeah. But the evidence in Sherry's case would not be used. It would sit packed away in commercial storage, gathering dust, as the world moved on from the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. But her parents, Nels and Loretta, they would not move on. They did everything they could to keep Sherry in the public eye to help her case get solved. They put up a $10,000 reward for information, and they even got Sherry featured on a true crime TV show called Murder One that ended up airing a segment on her. He would call the LAPD frequently over the years, asking if they'd checked out the lady cop yet. When Nels heard that DNA was starting to really take off in criminal investigations, he called and he asked the department to run the tests. When he was told that the department didn't have the money to run the tests, Nels said he'd pay for it himself. He'd even found a lab willing to do it. Well, But the LAPD would not give up the evidence. They told him the test wouldn't do any good without a suspect to compare them to. And Nels told them, sure, but I have a suspect. Yeah, like, I'd be so mad. I think he was incredibly frustrated. (laughs) But the evidence would never get tested. Not too long after Nels requested the DNA, all of the forensic samples in Sherry's case went missing. They were signed out by a detective who later said he had no memory of signing out the samples. Oh, hmm. I wonder who would have access to that. And it was all gone. To this day, there are no answers about why that detective checked out those samples 
or what his intentions were with them. Well, where'd they go? Like, even if if, if he were to actually check them out, what uh-huh. would, like, why would a detective check them out? To do what? To run them? So. Or to do something? Yeah. And don't they have to be checked back in? Wouldn't he then have checked them back in? No, they never got checked back in. They were just checked out. I, well, I know they didn't, but if if things, like, right. they should have been. Right. Or yeah. they would be, you know, wherever, Yeah. Yeah, I guess like the way they kind of said it was that sometimes detectives would go down and check out a bunch of stuff for different people Mm -hmm. and like pass it. I don't know. That seems like a chain of custody issue, though. So I'm not I'm not really sure. And I'm not a cop. And I didn't like they didn't really describe that process well enough for me to speak to it. Well, everything I've learned about it is from watching White Collars. I mean, same. (laughs) Like, if I whatever I say is going to be based off of like the little bit that they said in this article that I'm trying to actively remember because I didn't write it down, or Law and Order. Yeah, (laughs) forty percent accurate. But it wasn't just the DNA that went missing. All of the records in the Rasmussen file that indicated Stephanie Lazarus in any way, all all missing. That includes any record of Nell's mentioning the lady cop and even includes an interview with John the day after the murder where he discussed Stephanie with Detective Mayer. They still had the audio recordings and notes from every other interview. It's just the ones that mentioned Stephanie Lazarus that went missing. As highly suspicious. Yes. And according to Mark Bowden in the Vanity Fair article, this suggests that not only was there someone, possibly more than one someone, that refused to even consider that one of their own could have done this, but that they were actively conspiring to hide evidence to support that theory. Right. While Nels continues to fight for his daughter, John has moved on. He quit his job and he moved in with his parents in San Diego right after Sherry was murdered. He couldn't stand to go back to that condo again. Is he still friends with Stephanie? Well, they did go on a little trip to Hawaii in 1989. (gasps) What? Now that you ask. mm -mm. You're not just going off to Hawaii with like. Yeah. Apparently in like 1989, he and Sherry like got back in contact and then like met up in Hawaii. But other than that trip to Hawaii, I don't think that they were in contact still. And he actually, before he went to Hawaii, he called up Detective Mayer and was like, hey, there's absolutely no way that Stephanie Lazarus had anything to do with this, right? Like, with Sherry's murder. And Mayor was like, no, absolutely not. Go have fun in Hawaii, basically. I cannot wait till we get to the end of this, since I know she did it. And (laughs) he's going to find out, and he knows that he went to Hawaii with her. That is what I need. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, he definitely testifies against her, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't think he's ever talked about Hawaii. But I mean, like, I need the, like, tea on Hawaii. (laughs) Like, I don't care what. Be like, I so know. tell me about your trip now. Tell me about your trip to Hawaii, John. What? You, well, how was that? John ended up moving back to LA in 1990, and he later remarried and started a family with his second wife. Stephanie married a fellow cop and continued to rise in the ranks with the LAPD, making a solid name for herself. And you're gonna hate mm-hmm. where she ends up. Oh my god, you're gonna oh, love it. You're gonna I hate it so much. Hate. Oh, well, you're going to love – you're going to you're gonna hate that she ended up there. Okay. Over the years, she would work her way up from patrol to dare. She worked homicide, even internal affairs, before landing a coveted, prestigious spot on art theft. Wait. Go back to dare. Yeah, she was a dare officer. That's what I'm most upset about. <laughs> Not that she's white-collaring it up in the art theft. 
I mean, yes, but she got to carry around that little dare bear to all the elementaries. I am pissed about it. Did you ever get to hold the dare bear? I didn't. Um, I don't really remember a whole lot about my dare I experience. I just don't understand why I never got to hold the dare bear and why I was never Cougar of the Month. All I know is Were that dare, student of the month? dare was my very first introduction to hard drugs. <laughs> like... Like without dare, you mean without dare? I'm not sure I would really know what they were, and they certainly like they didn't do anything to dissuade me from taking them. I've never taken them, but that wait, was... your dare talked about hard drugs because mine was all about cigarettes. I feel like, and maybe the occasional <laughs> joint. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I I'm mad. I never got to hold the dare bear. Were you ever student <laughs> of the month? You strike me as a student of the month. I've gal. never been student of the month of, for anything for my whole life. Okay, me either. I was never Cougar of the Month. Okay, mm-hmm. and I went there first through fifth grade. How many months is that? At least eight. You're in school for eight months? Yes, nine. Yeah. Okay, nine times five, 45. I had 45 chances to be Cougar <laughs> of the Month, and I didn't get it one time. That was for the whole school? Like, every grade got uh-huh. it, a Cougar of the Month for the grade. Every oh. month. Every year. Oh. I had 45 chances to be Cougar of the Month, and I didn't get it one time okay but all the other 700 students also got 45 chances so okay but like you know my skill set it's true responsibility discipline and you're an only child so you're really good at sucking up to adults like like oh i'm not an only child my brother oh yeah well you were raised like an only child i know so and honestly he was a menace to society so you absolutely act like an only child What does that mean? I well, to me, it means you're mature Wait, for your you're age. You're actually an only child. I know, I know, I am. I don't act like an only child. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's something an only child would definitely say. I know, <laughs> but I just think they typically like don't think of other people. I feel like, and I feel like no, I that's not true. Some- yeah, you would say that as an only child. <laughs> I think we maybe have a harder time sharing a little bit, you know, because we're so used to like having all of our stuff. And we're a little like we always felt more comfortable around adults because that's who we spoke mm-hmm. with most of the time. That's who we hung out with was adults, mm-hmm. not other kids, you know. Now I'm trying to think if I re- I'm going to have to call my elementary and see if and I think like just records. toxic independence. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Check, 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 check. So she landed an art theft, and the art theft division, especially in L.A., meant she was often working – this is Stephanie – meant that she was often working closely with the rich and famous, which led to a certain PR aspect of the job that I'm sure Stephanie loved. Oh, I'm sure of it. She was well-respected. She had a reputation for being tenacious, tough, and strictly by the book. She never once had a disciplinary hearing. God, it's like I want to like her. I know. You she know? she was well-known and well-liked. She adopted a daughter. She started up the department's child care program. She'd started child safety initiatives through her private investigation firm that she'd started well, she up on the, the side. She took the bear there. <laughs> she'd offer free photographing and fingerprinting of children as part of like a protection kit for parents. She seemed really committed to work, and people said it was a privilege to know her. Hell. For 18 years, Sherry's case remained cold. But that all changed in 2001. 
That year, the LA police chief created a cold case division. And I always thought creating these divisions was like this act of altruism. Like, we really want to get justice. We really want to see these old cases solved, you know. But it turns out it's completely self-serving to the departments. Solving cold cases just really helps a department's closing rate. Because whatever year the case is closed, that's the year that gets the credit, even if it's in a different year than the murder. So like, for example, if you had 100 murders in 2022, and you solved all of them, but then you also solved a couple of cold murders from years before, your closing rate would be over 100%. I mean, who's looking at that? I mean, I'm sure they're looking at it's very important to them and their higher ups. It's the same people who's looking at star scores. Who's who's looking at star scores? I know, but who is the they? Like the police chief and the mayor and, you know. Look, the only star score I'm checking is my Starbucks app. (laughs) And I'm the they in that one. So once DNA started getting used in criminal investigations, the LA police chief thought it was a great opportunity to start combing through cold cases that had DNA evidence on file that might be easy solves at this point and just help their closing rate. You know, let's just run that DNA. Man, I love this because this girl's about to get got on a like, oh, what's this on this dusty shelf? Let's put it in the little machine. Yeah. Yeah. He started the cold case homicide unit. And three years later, a criminalist named Jennifer Francis started looking through Sherry's case. And I'd never heard the term criminalist before, but it's just another word yeah. for like kind of crime scene investigator. They're the science people. I like I don't criminalist. I want to be called a criminalist. Better, yeah. I like criminalist. It, It makes you sound like an expert on criminals. I don't know. I like it. Not like the candy tampering expert. That didn't really. (laughs) They're the people who use science to examine and analyze evidence of a crime. So like DNA. So criminalist Jennifer Francis starts flipping through Sherry's case file to see if they can solve it with DNA. And this is all pretty routine for her. Another day, another dollar, you know. But when she starts actually looking into it, she realizes there's so much wrong with this case. First of all, all the evidence is missing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But she notices that the crime report stated that a swab had been taken from the bite mark on Sherry's arm, but it had not been stored with the rest of the evidence from Sherry's case, and therefore it had not been checked out by that detective in 1993 when all the rest of the physical evidence disappeared. Well, they don't know. They just know it wasn't with the other stuff. So it's still somewhere. So Francis started at the beginning. When the swab was first stored while the case was still active, it would have been in the coroner's freezer. She thought maybe it was still there. Maybe it never got moved from the coroner's office to like where they, you know, move it when the case goes inactive. If you got stuff in your freezer from 20 years ago, (laughs) I don't care if you're a coroner or if it's at your grandma's house, (laughs) you need to clean it out. So she called the coroner's office, but he didn't have that case number on file, so he couldn't find it. So she went down there to the coroner's office, and they searched the freezers by hand, looking through every single thing to see if they could find it, and they found it. Yes. It was in a manila envelope that had like a hole near the top of it with the test tube poking out. It happened to be at the exact spot where the case number was written, this little hole. Mm-hmm. So it had never been filed with the rest of the physical evidence because the case number wasn't on the envelope anymore. And that's why it hadn't been included when all the physical evidence had been checked out in 1993. Well, how'd they know it was that one if the, fu- the number wasn't there? The name have, like, Rasmussen name. was still clearly visible across yeah. the front of it. Yep. 
And it was still- Oh, we couldn't file it by that last name? It's not like it was Williams. No, nothing is filed by name. It's all filed by the case number. So it had sat in this coroner's freezer for 18 years, and it was still (sighs) in perfect condition. I'm just saying, I feel like with a last name like that, you could have looked it up, gotten the case number, and then filed it by the case number. You know? I don't think I – th- I think probably this freezer is, like, full of all these samples, and so you're not just yeah. – And I guess they're not cleaning out the freezer, so they're not like, where's this guy belong? You know, he's been sitting yeah. here for a while. <laughs> Let me clean out your freezers, people. I'll get you organized. <laughs> Remember when I cleaned out your inbox? Look, yes. <laughs> when I had, like, 50,000 unread emails and your eyes about popped out of your skull – and so I organize it, and now I know it's 10 times worse, I'm It's sure. pretty bad. It's not 10 times worse, though. It's not even as bad as it was. So okay. it's still working there its way back up. Actually, I just <sighs> don't – I just don't uh, – I, I took the numbers off. Yeah, the notifications. If yeah. we pretend like the notifications aren't there, it won't <laughs> – no, it's still there. No, the numbers aren't there. I'm not – There are two types junk of people. Mail. I don't check junk mail. I do not open it's it. It's not junk. It is junk. It's all junk. <laughs> Oh, my God. It's all junk. It's from, like, every store that's ever got my email address. In late January 2005, Francis got the results back. They hadn't matched anyone in CODIS, which is the National Law Enforcement Database. But the results had shown that the person that bit Sherry was a woman. Francis thought this threw a wrench in Mayer's burglar theory. And maybe this showed that the entire case needed to be reinvestigated. But the other cold case detectives were like, hey, it's 2005. Don't we know by now that (laughs) women can be anything men can be, including burglars? I mean, true. None of the cold case detectives knew about Nell's suspicions about the lady cop. And there were no female suspects really in the file. So they just put the evidence back into storage and went on to the next cold case. There were nearly 8,000 cold cases between the years 1960 to 1998. And they were looking for only the cases that had the best chance of being solved with the limited resources of the cold case unit. Wait a second. Mm -hmm. Sherry's, no, sorry, Stephanie's DNA isn't in, I mean, like, I get that she's not a criminal, but when you're a cop, doesn't your stuff have to go in too? Apparently not. So can we change that? Can we, can we get everybody's on file there? I mean, like, my fingerprints are in the system from being a teacher. Is that a separate system? It is separate because I had to get re-fingerprinted when I wanted to do foster care. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm already fingerprinted as a teacher. And they're like, different, different system. You got to do it again. And I'm like, all right. Mm. So that's where it sat for another four years until February of 2009. <gasps> Apparently, the murder rate in L.A. had dropped at this point so substantially that homicide units were given cold cases to look over in addition to whatever current murders they were working on. And go, L.A. Yeah, and this is how the case gets in the hands of Van Nuys homicide detective Jim Nuttall. Nuttall was also troubled by the fact that the DNA report proved the killer was a woman. He thought this was weird. It It did make it much less likely that it was two burglars like Mayer had theorized, And he noticed that it didn't seem like any other theories were ever even investigated. Right. He decided to report it to his supervisor, Detective Bub. Detective Bub. Little Bub. Little little Bub the cat. Oh. There's a cat called Little Bub? Oh, but he died. But he had, yeah. Oh, I'm sitting him. Oh, he had this little tongue that stuck out. Oh, yeah, yeah. like his Instagram cat, you know, and he like his little limbs. Oh, Little Bub. 
And Detective Bubb agreed that this kind of made it seem like this should be reinvestigated. And he assigned two other detectives, Mark Martinez and Pete Barba, to help Nuttall reinvestigate. They combed through all the available evidence meticulously, studying notes, diagrams, photos, and transcripts, until the story seemed clear to them. And it was also a different story than what Mayer had seen. Mayer's theory was that burglars were robbing the townhome, and they'd been surprised when Sherry came downstairs to the living room. But what detectives now saw was that Sherry had been in the living room first, and she had been the one surprised by an armed intruder. Someone had come there to kill her. Hmm. Several things told them this, and I don't know how, but this is what they said. <laughs> okay. Not on Law & Order. We haven't learned this from Law I, I'm Order. like, oh my god, the deductions these detectives are making, I would never have figured that out from this crime scene. <laughs> it's fair. The front door had not been forced, and the alarm had been turned off. So that told them that she was there. So Sherry would not have heard two burglars entering the home. Whoever had come and surprised Sherry had fired off two shots at her that missed and hit the sliding glass door. And that's how the sliding glass door had shattered. Sherry then ran downstairs to the panic button they had on the alarm panel, but the killer got to her first. They fought and Sherry fought hard. She managed to get the killer's gun away and then get the killer in a headlock, which is how the bite mark ended up on her inner forearm. Oh. The killer bit her to break free and then grabbed that ceramic vase off the living room shelf and smashed it over her head. The killer then got to their gun and fired that first shot, bringing Sherry down for good. And then they grabbed that quilted blanket to muffle the sound of the gun, pressed the gun against Sherry's chest, firing off two more rounds and killing her. Why go through, like, you got the blanket to muffle the gunshot, but then you shot her two more times, which were unnecessary. I guess just to make sure. Or rage. Overkill, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, she obviously hates her. Yeah, I just, like, don't really get it. Like, over this dude? Do you even really want to be with him? Is that what this is about? They don't end up together. I mean, she got a trip out of to Hawaii, but... But I think they might have gone, like... I don't know. I don't know anything else about this Hawaii trip, but he wasn't, it wasn't long before he was married to somebody else and she was married to somebody else. So I don't know. Right. The biggest piece of evidence supporting this theory of the detectives was this blood smear on top of the CD player. So remember there was a VCR and a CD player stacked on top of each other? Oh, do I remember <laughs> the days? No Blu-ray? No Blu-ray player? There may be a, a um, what was the big one? The um, oh, uh, eight, oh. the eight tracks. Eight tracks? I mean, eight track or a record player. There was a blood smear on top of the CD player. Mayer had theorized that burglars were stacking them to get them ready to carry out when they'd been interrupted. But the blood on the CD player turned out to be Sherry's, and it was left by someone wearing a glove. This would make more sense that it was a killer trying to make a murder scene look like a robbery than if this were a burglary that turned into a murder. Because why would burglars grab stuff to steal after killing Sherry and then just leave it behind? Yeah. So, like, the CD player would have already been there when, like... She would have come. Yeah. The blood got there after Sherry died. The blood got on the CD player. So, Stephanie is going around... I mean, the killer is going around and <laughs> gathering... <laughs> 
gathering these things to stack them to make it look like a burglary. And right. she gets the blood smear on there, Sherry's blood on there, after she's dead. And then she leaves it behind to make it look like an interrupted robbery. I also think of this as like the scene they're painting of an hour and a half struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, I think blood could have just been transferred from, I'm getting their names confused, Sherry. Like, her own blood, she's bleeding, I'm sure, and they're like rustling around in this whole thing, you know? I mean, I just think it's messy. Because it would it was smeared by a glove. You know, it wasn't just blood oh, yeah. drops. It wasn't blood uh, splatter. Splatter. Spla- spatter. It was not blood spatter. It was a smear. So yeah. Oh, don't get smears into the splatter splatters <laughs> spatters. Scattered, smothered, smeared. So the Van Nuys detective started wondering if Sherry had any women in her life that would want her dead. Because remember, they don't have any of the information about Stephanie Lazarus. They have nothing. Nels. <laughs> they, yes. They made a list of any female suspects they could find in the case file, like anybody that was mentioned. And they numbered them all one through five, with one being the most likely suspect. The only note they could find about Stephanie was a note from Mayer that said, called John, verified Stephanie Lazarus, P.O., was former girlfriend. That is the only note in this entire case file that mentions Stephanie. Yeah, so they were wondering what P.O. meant also, and they guessed correctly that it stood for police officer. So they ran Stephanie's name through the department, and they realized that Stephanie Lazarus worked in the art theft division at the LAPD. She seemed an unlikely suspect, but was listed as number five on their list. So Detective Nuttall and Martinez, they go to see John, and they ask him about Stephanie. John told them that Stephanie had been Nels's theory, but that he'd never believed it. He still refused to believe it. In fact, Why? oh, here we go. Oh, it was a scuba trip. About three years after the murder, John and Stephanie had gone on a scuba trip to Hawaii together. Hmm. John had called Mayer before the trip to make sure there was no evidence linking Stephanie to the murder of his wife. And Mayer had assured him she was in the clear. No suspicions whatsoever. But they had suspicions now. They quickly eliminated three of their suspects because they had insufficient motive. That left Stephanie and another nurse at the hospital where Sherry worked. Neither seemed like a good suspect. For all the detectives knew, the relationship between John and Stephanie had been over for some time, and they didn't have any evidence of animosity. So they started with the nurse who had argued with Sherry occasionally at the hospital. They quickly got a DNA sample, and the nurse was eliminated bringing the suspect pool down to just one, Stephanie Lazarus. Nuttle got on the phone with Nels Rasmussen, who by this time he'd learned a bit more about and knew it had been his theory all along that Stephanie had done this. Nuttle saw how persistent he'd been, and he was impressed. And I wonder why he took him so long to give him a call. Yeah, hmm. He told Nels the case was getting a new investigation and that he needed him to walk him through everything again. Nels was happy to oblige, albeit a little worn that it had taken this long to get anything done. He recounted all the stories Sherry had told him about the lady cop ex-girlfriend of John's. Nuttall didn't want to say too much to Nels, but asked him to give him time to do what needed to be done, and he thought he'd have an answer for him. And I'm sure Nels is like, well, I have waited 20 years, so what's a few more? Yeah. So they start learning more about the relationship between John and Stephanie. 
They'd become close friends while they lived in the same dorm at UCLA. And after graduating in the early 80s, they started dating, but it had never been very serious. More a friends with benefits situation. They'd see each other a couple of times a month, and sometimes they'd have sex. John never considered them a couple, even though he'd do things like invite her to events like his company's Christmas party mm-hmm, in 1983. Mm-hmm. There's like a full-on prom photo of them together at his company's Christmas party. Yeah, like I said, when <laughs> men define the relationships is interesting. Yeah, so it seems like Stephanie thought that this relationship was a bit more serious than John realized. She wrote in her journal about how in love with him she was. She talked about him with friends, telling them that he was her idea of a perfect guy. Oh, so she's like definitely trying to get with him. Like she's. Yes. She threw him a surprise birthday party in September of 1984, unaware that he was dating Sherry at the time. And I think she, like, was throwing it as a, like, girlfriend throwing her boyfriend a surprise birthday party. And then, oopsie, John has I'm actually an, a girlfriend. Right. But then it's like, John, like, what are you – what signs They're just are friends. You? They're just friends, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. just real good buds. Oh, yeah. On June 4th, 1985, she found out that John was engaged. She wrote in her journal, I was very depressed. This is very bad. My concentration was negative 10. She came home sobbing and her roommate Mike asked her what was wrong and she said that John had broken up with her. Not that he'd gotten engaged, he'd broken up with her. He'd broken up with her. She wrote a letter to John's mother. She wrote, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. Every new piece of information detectives gathered seemed to support this new theory. The scene showed the killer had been careful, like a cop would be. They'd waited until Sherry was alone. They used a blanket to muffle the sound of the gun, something unlikely for a burglar to do that just wanted to get out of there. Right. I also like didn't realize that would work that well. Yeah, people use pillows, they use blankets, yeah. It muffles it. It doesn't, I don't think it eliminates the sound, but it it does muffle the sound. Listen, don't be giving out tips and tricks on here. These are things everybody knows. They don't. (laughs) Except for you. (laughs) It matched the theory of an intentional murder much better. Like the fact that the killer drove away in Sherry's BMW so they wouldn't be seen. Something a careful cop would do. Not the usual act of a surprised burglar who left with nothing else but a marriage license. (gasps) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Al Burks. Stephanie had been off duty on the day Sherry was murdered. The bullets recovered from Sherry had been 38s. And detectives thought it was unlikely that Stephanie would have used her service weapon to commit the murder because that's a whole thing, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. They discovered that she had another gun, a 38 Smith & Wesson registered to her that she'd bought after graduating the police academy, a gun that was reported stolen to Santa Monica police just 13 days after the murder. If she did it after? Mm-hmm. That seems dumb. It seems like she wasn't really planning this far in advance. Yeah. And so she needed, like, a way to, like, she couldn't just tell police, oh, like, if they came asking her about it, 
She couldn't just be mm-hmm. like, oh, I lost it. You know, like, oh, I can't find it now. Right. So she reported it stolen. What's she going to do with his marriage license? She's going to wipe out the name idea. and put her name on it? <laughs> That's not how that <laughs> oh my works. God, I have no idea. She's going to wipe it out. What was her plan? Put her name on it and then photocopy it. No, you know what? Multiple Maybe this times. whole thing was her and her girlfriends just wanted to get like a memory box together to burn, you know? <laughs> Is like this symbolic yes. act of closure, and she needed the marriage license for that. <laughs> she, yeah, she was just gonna burn it. Like, I wonder where that's at now. Yeah, so she told police that in Santa Monica. Also, that- how did they notice that was missing? Like, it had to have been on display. Yeah, like, they must have had it somewhere. It could have yeah. been like filed away somewhere. Yeah, no, I don't know. I can't let it go. All right. <laughs> I know. No, you, you're asking the good questions. I, no <laughs> I mean, I need to know. I uh, I skimmed a whole book and read two 10,000-word articles, and none of them would explain this marriage license thing. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have near enough information on this Hawaii trip. <laughs> she told them that she'd had her car parked at the Santa Monica Pier, and someone had broken into it and stolen her gym bag, which contained the handgun. And without mm-hmm. the actual gun or a bullet known to have been fired from that gun, they'd never be able to know if that was the murder weapon or not. And all of this was starting to piss detectives off a little bit. You know, this information yeah. wasn't new. <laughs> it it had all been available back in 1986. So why were they having to do this now? Mm. But with all the evidence that had gone missing and with Stephanie just completely ignored as a suspect it really seemed like someone had been protecting her. And it did complicate things, Stephanie being a police officer. For one, they could not be vocal about their suspicions. Not yet. They made a pact to maintain total secrecy and never speak or write Stephanie's name where anyone else might hear or see it. I think I saw somewhere they referred to her only as number five because she'd been suspect number five. (laughs) Oh, There was a procedure that they'd have to follow to investigate a fellow police officer, and news tended to travel fast once it was out. They waited about four months until they felt like they were ready. They went all the way up to the deputy chief of the LAPD, who authorized using the special operations section of internal affairs to help. Hmm. So now they're ready to get a DNA sample, but they wanted to make sure it was all on the down low, you know. If they happened to be Uh wrong, they didn't want to ruin her reputation over this. They'd been trailing her for about a week when she stopped by Costco with her daughter. They grabbed a pizza (laughs) and a couple soft drinks, and they sat at some tables that had been set up outside, which is very convenient for these detectives. When they were done eating, Stephanie threw her trash away, including the cup and the straw she'd been sipping out of, and just walked away. Undercover detectives pounced on the trash cans and fished the cup out. The next day, Detectives Bub and Nuttall were notified that Stephanie Lazarus's DNA was a match to the saliva from the bite mark. She was the killer for sure. 100%. Now that they'd identified her, the case was kicked over to the Robbery and Homicide Division of the LAPD, which happened to be directly across the hall from art theft. Yes. Here's my question. Did she just show up for work and get arrested at work? Well, not exactly, but I'll tell you. This did make the case pretty difficult to assign, 
Like, how would they know who was friendly with Stephanie? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, detectives Greg Stearns and Dan Jaramillo, which I hope I'm saying that right. Detective how do you spell Dan? it? J-A-R-A-M-I-L-L-O. But I don't know if it's, it's actually. It's a uh, – oh, I advised a girl with this last name. It's pronounced with like an H. Harmio. Or something like that, yeah. Okay. Ultimately, detectives Greg Stearns and Dan Harmio were chosen mostly because they didn't know Stephanie very well. But they needed to be careful about how they went about this. They needed to maintain secrecy as much as possible because apparently detectives are probably the most gossipy people on earth by (laughs) nature. Yeah. They just want to know everything. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I feel like that is the the tea in the hall. Right. They're very nosy. The detectives also weren't sure how she'd react when confronted, and they were worried about confronting her while she was armed. Oh. And they also wanted more information from her before letting her know what they knew. They wanted to question her without her really knowing what they were up to. So they tricked her. (gasps) On the morning of June 5th, 2009, Detective Jaramillo went to Stephanie's desk at the Parker Center, which is the LAPD administrative building in downtown Los Angeles, and told her he needed her help. He told her he'd arrested someone who had information on one of the art theft cases that she was working on. And he was hoping she'd come downstairs with him to interrogate the suspect. He said he he really didn't know a lot about this stolen art stuff, you know, and and he thought she could see if he's for hmm. real. Oh, man, they got her feeling like she's <laughs> like, oh, I'm an expert. Exactly. Like Exactly. I'd love to help bring yeah, me I'm down. I'm so good at this. He told her it'll only take like five minutes. And yeah, Stephanie was eager to help. She jumped up and walked with the detective chatting with him while they walked down to the holding area downstairs. Before you enter the holding area, you have to check your weapons. It's routine. Hmm. Something Stephanie would have expected, wouldn't have blinked an eye at. She easily handed over her police-issued gun. Jaramillo took her into a small interrogation room, but there was no one else in there. Oh, no. They asked her to have a seat in the chair usually given to the people being interrogated. Do you think her, like, heart rate's jumping up a little bit now? No, it's been, like, so many years. It's been so many years. I think that she thinks that all she has to do is talk her way out of anything. This obviously concerned Stephanie a little bit, but she sat down and she still looked friendly, eager to help. Pretty quickly, she discovered she'd been lured down there under false pretenses. They dropped Mm -hmm. the stolen art suspect story pretty quickly and said actually they'd been assigned a case and her name had come up and they wanted to speak to her privately because the case involved an ex-boyfriend and they knew she was married to another cop. They didn't want their colleagues gossiping, you know. Mm -hmm. They asked her if she knew John Rutten and she said, Yeah. yeah, they'd been very good friends, you know, but she was really vague with her answers. When they started asking about Sherry, she became even more vague. At first, it was, I may have met her, you know, I don't remember. It's been so long. She'd twist her face in like exaggerated looks of concentration. But she was also clearly annoyed that she was being questioned like this. Mm-hmm. Detectives were trying to keep this questioning non-confrontational for as long as possible to see what she would say. They didn't want to make her defensive yet. She kept trying to change the subject. She'd bring up mutual acquaintances. She tried to keep the discussion at the level of cop talk, you know. Mm -hmm. 
She talked about every other man she'd ever dated in her life other than John in an effort to show that John had just been a blip on her radar and it had been a million years ago. She'd do that thing where they'd catch her in a lie and she'd go, oh, now that you say that, you know, it's all bringing back all sorts of memories. Now I'm remembering this other thing. She had only admitted to things that she knew there was a record of, like the time she visited Sherry at the hospital. So it went from, I'm not even sure I ever met her, maybe once, it's been a million years, to, oh, now that you guys mentioned the hospital, I do remember this thing. She said, and I'm just going to straight quote her here from this transcript, I'm thinking that because he would date other people and I would date other people, and I think at one point he may have been dating her, I don't know, maybe he was married, I don't remember. And I'm like, why are you calling me if you're dating her or living with her or married to her? I honestly don't remember the time frame. I'm like, come on, knock it off. Now I'm thinking I may have gone to her and said, hey, you know what? If he's dating you, he's bothering me. I'm thinking we had a conversation about that one or two, maybe three. It could have been three. I don't want to say I had three conversations with her or whatever. No, listen, I have a shit memory. And if I go up to another woman's work to confront her about a man, it is ingrained in my brain forever. 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 You're not forgetting that. Like, I'm sorry, you're going to say that you barely remember confronting a woman that was then murdered, like, soon after you confront her? And also, she's making it seem like this whole conversation was a courtesy to Sherry. Like, I just thought you should know your man is stepping out, you know? Yeah. She said it was convenient for her to stop by the hospital because it was on her route to work. So It's convenient. Yeah. Okay. She said she had no issues with Sherry, just that if John was dating both of them, she she said, I probably said, hey, pick or something. <laughs> yeah. Said no woman ever, so flippant. <laughs> yeah, just right. pick or just whatever. Just pick already. One of the detectives brought up the possibility that Sherry snapped at Stephanie and was like, hey, that's my man. Leave him alone. Blah, blah, blah. And Stephanie said, well, you know, maybe that is what happened. But gosh, it's just been so long. Nothing's ringing a bell. That was a quote. (laughs) Yeah. So again, she had almost no memory of John's murdered wife, but she knew he got married and she'd been murdered, but she couldn't remember if she'd ever met the woman. To now some possible love triangle of we're both dating well, the same like, man. If y'all you were good friends with John and his wife got murdered, wouldn't you have like reached out to? I don't know. She's making it seem like, yeah, I don't really like that seems like a big deal. Yeah, she got murdered. I mean, we were good friends and then she got married. Yeah. I yeah, I agree. I don't know. But anytime she could, especially when the detectives asked her about all those times she stopped by John and Sherry's town home. She went with the mm-hmm. the old, I just can't recall any of that. <laughs> and then they showed their hand just a little, and Stephanie began to panic. Yes. She asked if they were accusing her of this, because if so, she'd have a problem with that. She said she wishes she'd been recording this, because it sounds like all these people have been saying she'd been fighting with her, and that now it sounds like they're trying to pin something on her. She said she was so shocked that someone would think she'd done this. 68 minutes after she'd first taken that seat, she stood up, thanking the detectives for giving her the courtesy of discussing this with her, and walked out of the room. She really thought she was just free to go. 
but it had been the plan all along that as soon as Stephanie quit talking, she would be arrested, regardless of what she told them. Ah. So she did not get very far before she was formally arrested and handcuffed and read her rights. Oh, man. She was taken to Linwood, which is the facility in Los Angeles County for female prisoners. It took six months to have her bail hearing, where her bail was set at $10 million. Oh, my goodness. This shocked both the defense and the prosecution, who'd only asked for $5 million. And Samantha Mocha. <laughs> the judge said the evidence against Stephanie Lazarus was so strong that she was definitely a flight risk. And it's like Robert Durst says, you know, you can't give murder suspects bail. They're gonna run. <laughs> yeah. What does she have to lose? I mean, I mean, her really? whole reputation, everything is going to be destroyed. Stephanie's defense attorney, Mark Overland, submitted a pretrial motion to have the entire case dismissed because he said the investigators in 1986 missed obvious clues and evidence that should have identified Stephanie as a suspect way back then. But that's not what happens. You get a free pass if they don't do it in time. That's what I was thinking. I was like, that's ridiculous. But then it started kind of making sense in like a scary way. He says that because she wasn't a suspect back in 1986, she now has to defend herself against the charges 23 years after the crime when the evidence has been damaged or lost mm. and people's memories have faded. And he brought up more evidence that had gone missing, like audio taped witness interviews, 911 calls. Apparently, John took a polygraph test and failed, and that went missing. Mm. The prosecutors argued that the defense needed to prove that the delay in charging Stephanie was intentional, which they could not do. So the case proceeded. Well, and that like the outcome could be, I mean, her DNA is a match. Like, I don't know. There's no like alternate. Outcome. Oh, he he like, has problems with the DNA. Oh, I'm sure. The trial began in early 2012. You got it at a Sam's Club <laughs> or Costco. Or Costco. <laughs> The trial began in early 2012. <laughs> Prosecutors argued that Stephanie's motive for killing Sherry was that she was jealous. John Rutten testified, and he got really emotional talking about Sherry. The prosecution took three weeks and 51 witnesses to lay out their case. There's that many? Apparently. The defense barely took two days. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> They're not that worried about her. <laughs> well, they just don't have that much to say. I yeah. Think. They said that the original botched burglary theory was the right theory all along. They pointed out the similar burglary that happened shortly after. He also tried to say that there were issues with- That the she probably knew about. Well, it was after. Never mind. Yeah. And I was I'm thinking it was before. And then I'm like, if she knew about that, she definitely used that as like a- yeah, but there had been bur other burglaries. Yes, like, L.A. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I can only say that because I lived near Houston. <laughs> so <laughs> don't come for me, L.A. I think L.A.'s got to know they're L.A., right? Yeah. He also tried to say there were issues with the way the DNA was handled back in the 80s since it was before the value of DNA was really known. So they would have mishandled yeah. it. He also called a fingerprint expert who said that there were prints at the crime scene that did not match Stephanie. Isn't it crazy how far, like, now DNA is, like, just a standard? It's like, in 20 years from now, what will we have God, advanced where we're like, oh, in 2022, they had no idea that this was, I don't know, it's weird to think about. Well, I always think that we're kind of, we've kind of maxed out, like, our capabilities, yeah. you know? But I'm like, you did they that. did they think that a hundred years ago too? Like this is the end. Like this yeah. is it. 
I mean, I'm sure I'm still waiting for my hoverboard, you know, but oh, I'm still trying to mark a text unread. That's all I want. Like, literally, Apple, let me mark a text unread. If we can do DNA, and we can get Kristen a magic carpet and a hoverboard. Let me mark a text in red. I know someone can figure that out. <laughs> yes, hard. I agree. I don't know why. They in 2040, I better be able to mark it in red. All right. Boop, boop, boop. During closing arguments, the prosecutor, Paul Nunez, showed the jury pictures of Sherry and told them, quote, it wasn't a fair fight. This was prey caught in a cage with a predator. Overland, the defense attorney, said the entire case was circumstantial fluff and fill, apart from the, quote, compromised bite mark DNA. He moved for a mistrial after Nunez told jurors that Stephanie had not proved an alibi for the time of the murders, saying that that was a violation of her Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. You do not have to testify and refusing to testify cannot be held against you. And the judge said, all right, that's a stretch. Saying she didn't have an alibi is not directly suggesting that Stephanie refused to testify. Her rights had not been violated. The jury deliberated for several days. And in March 2012, the now 52-year-old Stephanie Lazarus was found guilty Guilty. of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison and will be eligible for parole in 2034 when she'll be like – 74 years old, something like that. I want to look her up. Two lawsuits were filed based on the evidence tampering allegations. So all the evidence, like the recordings and transcripts of interviews discussing Stephanie that went missing. One was filed by Sherry's parents, Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, but it was dismissed because of the statute of limitations. They said they would have needed to file their lawsuit by 1998, but that is such crap because no one knew all that evidence went missing until Jennifer Francis discovered it during the first cold case investigation. And speaking of Jennifer Francis... She's my peep of the week. Well, and she filed... Yeah, she is. And she filed the other lawsuit, which was a whistleblower suit that alleged that after she found that the DNA from the bite mark belonged to a woman, the LAPD detective supervising her steered her away from Lazarus as a suspect. (gasps) <gasps> and this isn't the only case that she believes DNA evidence was purposefully ignored and sometimes even destroyed. When Jennifer started questioning some of these things, she started getting called into her supervisor's office a lot. They sent her to employee counseling because of stress, but she knew it was a punishment and that the counselor was there to get more information on what she knew about the Lazarus case. Ugh, I just love that eye roll. Uh Uh-huh. When Jennifer wouldn't tell her therapist any of this, she was called into her supervisor's office and told she wasn't cooperating well enough in her counseling. Oh, my God. She was taken off cases she'd been working hard on. One case that just so happened to be led by a detective who had insisted that Stephanie Lazarus was not involved in Sherry's murder. Jennifer was what, threatened. What is their deal? Like, I don't know. I, None I, of this is ever like, explained. I get, protect your own, but, like, to what extent? Like, Right, and is, it's, like, like it's why? not, you know, <sighs> yeah. Jennifer was threatened with more counseling. She was called obsessed, emotional, you know, all these women mm. adjectives we tend to throw out. And then she was transferred to a non-analytical position. <sighs> Even after Stephanie's conviction, Jennifer Francis continued to face retaliation. And in April 2019, her lawsuit ended when a jury found for the city, which sucks. 
But that is the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. Jennifer, you're my peep of the week. Jennifer Francis, peep of the week. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to really stand up in that kind of environment, in that kind of like. Yeah, men. Yeah. To your colleagues, to your supervisors, and like you're. You're like, hey, this isn't right. Like, something is really wrong yeah. here. Yeah. Peep yes. of the week to Jennifer Francis. Do we think DNA is like 100% all of the time? No. I think there are a lot of problems with DNA. I think that, like, DNA matches can be wrong. Okay, great. So do I. Because there's no way my dog is Doberman <laughs> and Boxer <laughs> and – all these other I think that they probably just things. like threw darts at a board and whatever it landed on whatever dog 100% then, and then they I just sent that the, to you I look at those DNA results I'm like get out of here this is wrong this is wrong but I'm you know not a scientist and I don't know enough about it I have read some things that because otherwise if I thought DNA was 100% truthful I would say all of us should just go get our DNA on file you know Everybody, yeah. and that way they could just always run the DNA in crimes and they'd come up with the suspect because we'd all have it on file. But the problem is that sometimes no. DNA can be not. No, I've already warned against that. No, the problem is you'll start getting all these family members, <laughs> as I've told you, that start showing up to things and you're like, who are you? Yeah, True I'm story. definitely against the ancestry. I'm not – I'm never going to do that. <laughs> Unless you want to sponsor this podcast and then we might. <laughs> so maybe we'll one day get there where it's just 100%. And there's also touch DNA and transfer DNA. You know, people say, you know, all all the Amanda Knox stuff like, mm-hmm. it was on the bra strap. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here we go. We do have shout outs. Ooh, okay. We're going to finish up our March shout outs. All right. Our first shout out goes to – Drum roll, please. Oh, that's very good. Thanks. Trakina Price. Trakina Price. I, I know. I love it too. Trakina Price. Thank beautiful. you so much. And next up, this is our second. I got another research assistant. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah, I got a I got another one. When do I get an assistant? <laughs> to do what? To sh- so I could take a sick day. Okay, I could have used a sick day. Y'all, quit doing Kristen's work for her. <laughs> Shout out to Vixen Moon. Thank you, Vixen Moon, for being a patron. And for and for being a research assistant as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? I don't understand this one. Tammy Maxwell, I understand your name. I don't understand your phonetic spelling out. Hooah. Hua, ha ha. Is that it? Tammy, Hua. Tammy Maxwell. Hua. Hua? <laughs> Question mark. Hua. What? Thank you so much, Tammy. And last but not least, thank you so much to Blair. XOXO. Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl. I wonder if they hate that. You should love it, though, because Blair is the best character. I'm sure they do. It's hate a it. compliment, but I could see it being annoying. <laughs> Was she the better character? Was she the what do you mean? She was the best character of all time. Oh, okay. Of all of the characters ever, Blair Waldorf is on top. I don't know what you're implying. 
I don't know. I really love the character development of Chuck, but we're done. Thank, Thank you, you everybody. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Thank you. If you want to, sh- if you God. want your own shout out, you know, sign up for the Patreon. That's how you get on there. <laughs> and if you want to find <laughs> us still on listening to us, <laughs> if you want to find us on socials, we are on Instagram and Facebook at creepers pod. And you can always email us any case suggestions or anything else at creeperspot at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe. Oh, leave us a review. Go on, go right on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop us a little five-star rating and a review. That would be very helpful, especially if you like us, okay? Because the haters are coming Yeah, if you don't, just email us. (laughs) You don't email us, yeah. We will work on it. We can have a discussion. Yeah, we are open to it. We are open. Lively debate. Yes. I can't respond to reviews, which, so, oh, my cats are trying to break down. Gotta go. Bye, peeps and creeps. (laughs) 